Hi there, and welcome to another discussion. I am more than delighted to invite today an old friend, and maybe I can call him a legendary activist, Peter Staley, and he's most famous as a member, pioneering member of ACT UP, the grassroots AIDS group. He founded both the Treatment Action Group, TAG, TAG, and the educational website AIDSMeds.com. He was a heroic fighter for access to drugs and for the acceleration of research into HIV and played a part in helping stem the epidemic. And he also features prominently in the Oscar-nominated documentary How to Survive a Plague. But he has a new memoir, which came out last year. Is it in paperback now? Is it coming out in paperback? Or is it still it's coming out in October, I think. Okay. And it's called Never Silent. That's certainly true for Peter Staley. <laughs> Never silent. Act over my life in activism. Peter, thank you so much for, for doing this. And welcome to the Discast. Thank you, Andrew. It's good to see you. I'm glad we're here together in P-Town. We do. that. We actually do this basically once a year. You, you come to P-Town. We hang out. Yeah. We go to dinner. We argue. We argue. <laughs> <laughs> we laugh. And last time we just listened to a bunch of pop music late into the night. It was an absolutely lovely yeah. time. Yeah. Peter, tell, tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what your, your background was. Well, I was born in the last weeks of the Eisenhower administration, right before JFK's inauguration in Sacramento, California. My dad worked for Procter & Gamble as a plant manager, and we got moved a lot like every two years, all around the country. I settled outside Philadelphia on the main line when I was eight years old. And that's kind of where I grew up. So, and that and what was waspy the atmospheric? area. It's quite, quite waspy <laughs> scale. Was your, your family was, was relatively, what would you say, conservative or not? It was thankfully split. I had a Republican father in, in the mold of Rockefeller Republicans. And I had a Democratic, a Democrat mother, mother, and we, our kitchen table dinners were often political debates. And I think my dad was a pretty lousy Republican because all four kids ended up leaning Democrat <laughs> pretty quickly and have remained so ever since. But uh, that's quite healthy. Yeah, it is it, very it, healthy. It, I, I find it much less healthy when children grow up to be exactly the same politics as their parents. It, it's, it gets a little creepy. Right, right. And, that, and that's the sta status quo, right? I mean, that's how it mostly happens. So. And as you grew up, what did you kind of think of you were going to do with your life? I was set to be, I had dreams of aspiring to be a politician. I got very hooked on politics in high school during the Carter years. I'm <laughs> really dating myself. And I dreamed of like being an advisor to a president or maybe even a president someday. And so I thought I would follow my older brother, Jess, to Wall Street and use that as kind of a financial stepping stone to self-financing a congressional race in my 30s. Back then, using Wall Street as a stepping stone seemed reasonable. By today's standards, it would be insane, but it was perfectly, it was a perfectly fine stepping stone back then. So well, it's always good to have some financial independence if you're going to go into right. politics. It's actually a kind of really helpful thing. It, it certainly helps you be a politician. I think it helps you to say no to people when you might always mm -hmm. have to say yes. So I had that dream and I stuck to it. I was on, on that path pretty well. Got out of college, got but, a job on Wall Street, was hating the job, but was 
you know, getting more and more bigger paychecks every year. And then everything changed in 1985. Let me ask you though, growing up thinking to be a politician in the seventies, sixties and seventies as a gay person, how did you consider that in your head? You, you knew you were gay, presumably, and yet you knew that there was almost no one, well, there was zero, no one in public life, seriously, who was openly gay. Did you, part of you think that that would be impossible for you? You needed to be an advisor rather than an elected person? Or did you think that you would somehow push through that issue? How you reconciled thoughts of being a politician with the fact that you were homosexual? Or had you grappled with that? <laughs> well, first off, I was 1920 when I laid out this life plan. So I was pretty naive. And I, you know, I, I didn't think that out. <laughs> <laughs> it was like cross that bridge when you come to it type thing. There are, I mean, I assumed that there were gay men in leadership throughout government, keeping it well closeted and that that was a, a, a possible path, you know, it was being done. So, but yeah, I, I just naively said, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I can, I, I built a pretty tight closet and it seemed to work for me and it, it didn't feel too uncomfortable it was except except on the trading floor on wall street it got really uncomfortable then but otherwise tell me about tell me about that what, what well those what, are like you know any? this is the u.s government bond market which was you know the bond traders were the kings of wall street in the 80s with Volcker having pushed interest rates to 21% and all of a sudden interest rates, not the stock market price is the number one data statistic that's put on the nightly news for a couple of years. And we were the kings of Wall Street. It was insane, but it was like working in a high school male locker room with, you know, it was the most homophobic, sexist, racist, you just go through all of it environment filled with testosterone very few women working on the floor virtually no women traders and uh, and nobody was out obviously so i just i felt i wasn't not only was i hiding a big part of myself and making up lies and i had a beard my good friend tracy tannenbaum would would come to a few events bank events playing my beard and i, I had to do all that shit but it was more just i had to be as much of an asshole as the other traders in order to survive and keep my head above water. And so I would come home every night just feeling as though I, you know, had not been, I felt gross. I felt like I was an asshole. So. Did you manage to have relationships or, or sex in a different zone at the time? I'm, I'm just curious, people, people today, I don't, they don't, fully appreciate the dynamics that gay men used to live with in terms of boundaries, compartmentalization. How did you manage that psychologically? Would, would you just have fun in the, in the bars and clubs at night on the weekend or whatever, and then go to work and be in a totally different zone? Or was it, was it more complicated than that? No, it wasn't. It was basically that, you know, my gay life was on the weekends in some of the great, great gay bars in the East Village back then, the boy bar and the bar on 2nd Avenue. And I had you know, short-term flings, but yeah, part of the closet didn't, a full-time live-in boyfriend could not really be part of the picture. So 
I never progressed to that until just before the diagnosis when something was getting pretty serious with my latest fling who I had met in Amsterdam. But yeah, you know, gay, gay boys in their 20s. I was oblivious to all of it. So. The oblivion ended in, on what day? Do you remember the day it ended? Yeah, November 15, 1985. So Rock Hudson wow. had died of AIDS recently. The country was finally, you know, they'd ignored AIDS for four years for the most part, but it was now on the cover of every magazine. It was the story du jour, mostly because of a panic and a fear. This is when that household with children who were hemophiliacs at testing HIV positive was they were burned out of their home in Florida that year. I mean, all of that crazy shit went on. It, they were finally paying attention, but in the wrong way with panic and stigma. So not a good time to find out. And I was watching the first TV movie done about AIDS, an early frost on one of the network channels. And, and this new guy I was dating, was I was watching with it. And we just wanted to watch because we thought Aiden Quinn was really hot. He played the... <laughs> we wanted to see the only yeah. reason gay men watch anything at this point go on no we're giving the but he gets PC, he yeah. gets pcp pneumonia and he has to go home and tell his parents the double whammy i call it now the early frost double whammy where i have aids and oh, oh by the way i'm gay and uh, and i had a bad cough so <laughs> the guys guys with pointed to the screen and he said you sound just like him pointing pointing to aiden quinn I said, I know, I know, I'll go to, go to my doctor. And I had a, a great gay doctor in New York who, unbeknownst to me, was already one of the more famous frontline AIDS docs in New York City. I had no clue that he was losing patients right and left. So when I, when I went in there with a cough, he had a new trick up his sleeve. Any of his gay patients who came in for anything beyond an annual he would run a CBC, a complete blood count, and just wanted to see if there had been a ding to the white blood cells. Because, you know, you, you get a loss of CD4 cells from HIV, it affects your white, white blood cell count. So that's how I found out. All I had was a cold, by the way. <laughs> the cough was not PCP, but I had low white blood cells, and that led to an HIV test the day I found that out, and a CD4, CD8 you know, lymphocyte panel. It was all confirmed in the days and weeks ahead. So, and I went home to my family 10 days later over Thanksgiving. And just like Aiden Quinn gave them one at a time, sat down with each of them and gave them the early frost double whammy. And how did they respond to it? Well, much better than the parents on a TV movie. And how old were you then? I was 24. And so, uh, yeah, it was, those were hard, hard conversations to have as a 24 year old. Did you feel terror or did you feel shame? No, no um, shame. I mean, I'm, I talk about that in the book quite a bit. I, for some reason, I got lucky on the shame front, both about being gay and also about the infection, about being HIV positive. I've always, you know, been blessed or cursed, depending on your point of view with kind of a Spock-like uh, sense of logic. And it just, when I realized I was a, attracted to male bodies during puberty, although I didn't act on it until I was 20 years old, I 
you know, I knew, I also knew that about the F word faggot, I knew that society condemned those thoughts and that it was all about, you know, men dating girls and on and on. Boys who liked boys were a terrible thing. And so I hit it, but I, I assumed, you know, it was just this stupid stigma that there was nothing, there was obviously a bunch of boys who liked boys and it was, it, it was part of the natural scheme of things. So I think it, it was just one of those fucked up things in society that I had to work around. But the thoughts in my head couldn't be, they had no moral, <laughs> they were just, they just surged into my head. You know, it's, you look at the, you look at something on screen and your penis reacts. <laughs> There's not a lot of preemptive. No, it's very, I mean, the, to be honest with you, I had the same feeling. I mean, I, I, I knew intellectually, and of course I should be, I'm a Catholic, I was brought up so strictly Catholic and, and, and still am in so much of my worldview, but the, the very instinctual, involuntary, the fact that, again, yes, I would simply look at things and without any volition at all, I'd be turned on in a way that I had no choice. Yeah, it was oh. obviously no choice. It's one of the nicest things one of my straight friends said to me at the time when I came out to him. And he said, well, you can't help what makes you hard, can you? <laughs> and that was his. And I, just, I thought that was such a lovely thing to say, actually, because it, it, it's just it's true. And of course, if you can't help something, you can't be morally culpable for it i mean it's now you could be morally culpable for having sex with another man or you're morally culpable if you jack off but at that level again when i jacked off which i did for like 10 years of my life my first 10 years of being a, an adult there was no way that i could configure that that was something to be ashamed of it seemed so completely natural and so also wonderful just like this incredible revelation yeah. that i could have an orgasm and that's the most intensely pleasurable experience i just couldn't get my head around being ashamed of it but i like you made certain calculations put some things off right. decided i would jump off that bridge when i got right, to it right. but to be confronted with that at the same time as you're confronted with the fact that you're probably going to die right. within a few years and not just die of anything but die of something that you're seeing around you is wreaking right. unbelievable havoc on people's bodies souls and minds and it is i find the thing that younger gay men and a lot of other people forget about it is that it was a particularly horrifying illness to undergo. Yep. It was many illnesses at once. So you must have been terrified by that. Yeah, I was. I mean that on that November fifteenth I picked I found a magazine, a cover story on AIDS that had everything we knew up until that point. And it taught me right away that first day I learned about retroviruses and how they have RNA instead of DNA and how that RNA stitches itself into a host cell. In this case, the T4 cell, the most important white blood cell you have, the conductor of the immune system. And it turns that T cell into a factory for more HIV where it pushes out thousand more, thousands of more viruses and then kills that T4. And then over many years, you lose enough T4 cells that other diseases swoop in and finish you off, not always quickly, sometimes, but sometimes very slow, terrible deaths. So I was all in that, that article, and I definitely so was, had a good what, what, cry that night, but I don't know, it, it felt like a, a, a health, the healthier thing, thing I could do was to compartmentalize and 
and avoid the thoughts of those last hard months. And the article mentions some therapies that were in research that might maybe slow down the virus. I was, I was most horrified by the genetic part of the article that HIV genetically integrated itself into your cells. And this was, you know, this gene therapy was still science fiction back then. It just was nowhere. It wasn't part of the conversation. So I kind of figured out that I was not going to be fighting for a cure, that I would very likely die from this, but maybe I could buy some time with these drugs and finding out what kind of research is going on, if we can speed things up, if we get more research going. I'd rather try that than just roll up in a ball and and I think most, most so when people did that, are like that. When did that, yeah, but when did that, under, first of all, you intellectually understood why this was an incredibly hard nut to right. crack, a, a retrovirus. Unlike, it's unlike other viruses. In fact, I think it remains true, you will know better than me, that it's the only retrovirus for which we have any kind of treatment, still. I think there are others, but yeah. <laughs> okay. But the, at the time, it was the first retrovirus ever stymied. I mean, not killed off, but stymied right. by a combination of factors. But let, I'm getting ahead of myself. So how did the transition happen between you being this Wall Streeter, suddenly presented with this extraordinary information, having a brain as powerful as yours, understanding that maybe you could buy some time? And I think one of the most unsung points of activism in the 80s and 90s is, is not necessarily, it was the drugs that were expedited that that were not about HIV, that were about the infections that accompanied HIV to collapse. In right. other words, like pneumocystis needed Bactrim. Right. You, that were, and there wasn't, it wasn't available at that point, I don't think. At least it wasn't understood. When did you psychologically decide, well, I actually have to make this my cause. I have to try and do this. What, what were the steps in your head? Because lots of people didn't. Yeah. Lots of people were afraid. Lots of people were ashamed. Some people wanted to do something, didn't know how. Tell, just explain to me how that happened in your own head. I, you know, there was no click or anything. I was, I, I, at, you know, my first instinct grabbing that magazine, wanting to know everything I could, was the instinct I, I stuck with for the next year and a half of just keeping myself on a steep learning curve. I didn't know about the gay, po gay politics in New York City. I had never heard of Larry Kramer. I didn't know the early history of AIDS prior to 85. I didn't know how the public health system worked. I had yet to meet another person with HIV. So that became a thing to put on my checkbox. I need to meet somebody who's going through this. So I went to a GMHC support group and I got lucky. There was an activist in that room who was one of the co-founders of the self-empowerment movement, which was early, the earliest of AIDS activisms. He, he had co-founded New York's People with AIDS Coalition, and and with, within, and he became the first HIV positive man. The first time I had sex since my diagnosis, we d we did the gay handshake within a week, and and within two weeks he was introducing me to Michael Callan and Michael Hirsch, all this, all the you know the AIDS leadership of AIDS activism in New New York, and I was listening to them, still, I you know they had a huge library of all the treatment newsletters I read all of the back issues and caught up. So, so, and when the, you know, and as I learned, it 
only got scarier. I realized that Reagan hadn't, you know, he, he had been asked in a press statement, I think he had said the, said the word AIDS in, in some sort of response in 85, but he hadn't really talked about it at length at that point at all. That speech came in mid-87. So he'd gone through six years of the crisis, pretty much ignoring it or doing the wrong things. And that was reflected in the AIDS budget at the NIH. So my singular selfish impulse of wanting to see what therapies could slow down the virus, I got, you know, when I started learning how much AIDS research was being ignored by the federal government, then I realized the job was just gigantic. It, it, we had to change hearts and minds of the American public. We had to get them to support spending more federal dollars on AIDS research. And I had just lived through 85 where the stigma was only getting worse. So we had to turn that around. And when a movement showed up on my doorstep, <laughs> on my way to work, I got handed a flyer for ACT UP's very first demonstration. And I saw it on the news that night. I, I said, well, this, this, this is hopeful. This is getting attention. Maybe this is the beginning of something I can latch on to. So I got to the next meeting and it was instantly addictive, instantly addictive. It was a beautiful thing to witness those early ACT UP meetings. Explain, explain what was beautiful about them to you. Well, the, it was on the ground floor meeting hall of the Lesbian and Gay Community Center on West 13th Street in New York, which is kind of our kind of ground zero for the AIDS epidemic in New York City, with the AIDS Memorial is now a block south of that. And it was packed. It was already over 100 people there. And there were, there were people from Stonewall. There were Stonewall veterans in the room. There were plenty of guys my age. There were, and there was, I had never seen so many lesbians mixed in with gay men. I, I had never seen, you know, I only went to gay bars. I rarely saw lesbians. So it was a real mix generationally. And there was a palpable sense that this was something that the old guard hadn't witnessed since the post-Stonewall years. You know, they had that burst of activism with the radical gay rights. I'm going blank on their initials now, but that all fizzled out. Yeah, GAA. And they all fizzled in the early 70s. You know, they, a lot of internal fighting. But there was that burst of activism and all of them had been part of that. And then they had seen not much. They hadn't seen that energy since. And so they, you could see in their eyes, they knew that this was as big, if not bigger, and it was going to sustain, it was going to do something we didn't know what, but that we were going to make history. There was a real sense, everyone in the room, that we had just captured some major national attention and we weren't going to let that go. So in some respects, it was a kind of marketing campaign. Is that, is, is, would that be fair? I mean, I'm not saying all of it, but I'm saying a part of it was to speak to the center of the country, try and get them to realize this is a real crisis. At the same time, you know, there was the sense that this, there was, a, I think, a slightly misleading sense that this was also thoroughly threatening to most heterosexuals when, in fact, it, it wasn't really. Right. And it remained kind of a, a, a not, well, there were other factors involved, but it was still at that point overwhelmingly gay men. In the U.S. Or in the U.S., men who have sex with men, as we, we, now, we now have to call them. Or actually, we rightly should call them, given that that was the activity that was putting them at risk, and many of them didn't self-identify right. as homosexual. So why the, was it mainly seeking attention? I mean, there were two parts of this, right? Yeah. You have both the, 
the sense that you want to create spectacle. You, 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 you are one of the people, right, who actually created a giant condom and wrapped it around Jesse Helms' house. <laughs> yes. This sort of a complete frat boy prank in a way <laughs> at some level, right? But that sure got you news, right? What were the things that you did that that you thought would get you news? Because that was what was interesting about the way you strategized this, is that, is that you wanted to get onto the national newspaper. You knew that you need to get this out there. And that was a stunt that no newspaper or TV could resist right. filming right. or photographing. Well, I mean, we had, a, we had this early advantage that, yes, every movement plays to the press because they can influence public opinion. They can be your biggest megaphone. And ACT UP was certainly good at that, although, you know, we did it with some pretty radical actions, radical visuals that scared the shit out of some members of our own community. I think you, you were, you were one of the A-gays that was like, oh my God, what, this group is going to get more backlash and cause more trouble than it's worth. And we had a lot of skepticism. And I think our great conceit was, I mean, it wasn't a well thought out marketing plan, but our great conceit was that six years into the crisis, the inside route, the, you know, trying to, trying to find our friends in the House and Senate to get a little more AIDS funding um was not doing it and if we stayed only on that route then we'd lose entire this entire generation of gay men and and maybe parts of the next and something we endure as a community for generations even and so our conceit was well we're all furious we're all desperate and anger let's show that to the american people that we're determined that we were organized and you know, that scared all the A-gays. They were like, oh, the backlash is going to get worse. But it got right. It, it didn't. It got wrapped up in this beautiful bow by the American press who, you know, patients in the street for any disease protesting outside the FDA. That had never, that had never happened. Homosexuals by the hundreds putting their bodies in front of a federal building that had never, and they knew well enough that Reagan had largely ignored the crisis, that thousands of people were dying from an epidemic that the country was consciously choosing to soft pedal because it wasn't them and it was just us. And they started wrapping that up as we became the movement du jour and kept their attention. They wrapped it up with the stories that because the government ignored us, we had started all these beautiful service groups right away in 1981 and 82, GMHC, San Francisco Age Foundation, that were so big by this time that they could basically assure that no gay man with HIV would die alone, which is a, a beautiful thing. They would have multiple service. They'd have free legal. They'd have you know, their food brought to them. They'd have a buddy dedicated to them. And I was one of those yeah, buddies. You did you did buddy core. part of part of that system and and again it was also a God's Love We Deliver, I think was another one or and in DC there were different there was different I think it was differently named. We're trying to remember now what the name was. But yeah, I felt that portraying first of all gay men as victims of a disease, patients, human patients, this vulnerable human being, shifted the narrative. Then to show that we are 
self-organizing, taking care of ourselves as a community seemed to me to be actually something that Republicans or conservatives should should actually appreciate that this we weren't waiting for the state to do everything we were helping ourselves and organizing ourselves in a way that was a model a model for a community grappling with a challenge like this it didn't mean that it should supplant government intervention but it was, it was a good model my concern was when you know when people couldn't get to work on brooklyn bridge when they were stuck when when again, this famous assault on the Catholic Patrick's the, the, the mass at St. Patrick's yeah. Cathedral, which I thought completely unnecessarily alienated large numbers of people we needed to persuade. And I and I felt some of the rhetoric was designed to get attention and but the and and we needed that attention. I totally understood that, but I was just worried about some of the fanaticism that some of the the, visual, the visuals were not helping. And of course, if that were the only thing that was going on, it would be one thing. And so my defense of it really in retrospect and my understanding of it in retrospect is that as long as it was a sort of good cop, bad cop routine, as long as it was followed up with an attempt to reach out to big government agencies, drug companies, the NIH, and so on and so forth, this created the, the leverage. Then you went in and negotiated and talked. And, and that was that was a tension within ACT UP from the from yeah, the and that and that did happen. But that first job that I mentioned of changing hearts and minds, that happened really fast with our splash into the national scene and the press wrapping us up in a bow with very sympathetic coverage. And you know, Gallup poll, you know, the poll is has got the longest poll going in American history on its level of homophobia. It's a, it's a sodomy question, basically. Should sex between same-sex partners be legal or illegal? You know, should you be thrown in jail for having gay sex? And they asked that question as early as 1977, at the end of the sexual revolution. And they have kept asking it. They still ask it today because it's the longest-running measure of homophobia in America, and it gets updated every year now. They were asking it every year and a half back then. When they first asked, end of the sexual revolution, it was about half-half, 45%, 45%, the rest, no opinion. And then AIDS started in 81, and the throw them in jail line started to rise. The backlash started, and it got worse and worse and worse as the crisis went on. They rolled out the quilt in 87, made no dent in that. It only got worse. It peaked at 57% throw them in jail in 1988. And then we surrounded the FDA and had our national coming out. We were not going back and negotiating all the fixes with the FDA yet. We were just making this movement du jour splash, showing our resolve. The next time they asked that question, uh, a year later in 89, the biggest shift in that poll in its entire history happened. And it went from, it dropped 21 points between polling points. And it wasn't a fluke. It stayed there even after Stop the Church. It stayed there. The, the, the let, them, let them be legal line crossed it. It went, down, it went from 57 to 36. And the let, leave them alone went to 42. Those lines stayed crossed all the way through until gays in the military, don't ask, don't tell, where a little backlash started happening again. And then marriage got it worse again in 2004, as you know. But 
so we did change hearts and minds before we did all the geeky stuff. And the AIDS research budget started to soar under Reagan, under Bush, because we made this a hot topic issue in the American public. You, you started polling Americans in 1989 on should we spend more on AIDS research? 80% said yes. 80% of this country doesn't agree on anything anymore on any issue. So it was an extraordinary yeah, success. Yeah, but it was also... You were too... I think yes. you were too... You were watching us too close. We didn't fucking care about the people honking their horns in the traffic. We were doing something far grander than that. And that was the, how this would play to the vast public on their TV. And yes, but they also were simultaneously. I mean, I'm not denying what you're saying. So I agree with you. However, what was also happening, of course, is that suddenly people were more aware of people they knew whose sons were dying, people that the, the images of suffering were intense and the sense of this being a horrible, that gay people shifted over, gay men shifted overnight from being these nefarious, powerful, perverse group to being clearly victims of a horrible disease, alone, isolated, and the American public actually seemed to have a heart. And, you know, it, it, it's... In some ways, it gives you certain faith in in mainstream opinion that they that they did not respond to the suffering of others by seeking to punish them further. In fact, they shifted their view. I think it I think it made them more aware also that gay men were everywhere in America because they were dying everywhere in America. That 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 the parents and families of of people in the deep South were aware suddenly of this. That people in their families were dying, and it was a it was. It was a, a shift of consciousness about who gay men were. They were suddenly not these invisible, dangerous specter. They were radically victims of a horrible disease that was suffering intensely. And, and, and that gives me hope, actually, for the way in which the American public in general can be sympathetic to, to difficult questions. And I think the last 30 years has shown that with all these exceptions that you point, the backlashes, the, the, there has been this astonishing shift in public understanding of who gay men are. And AIDS was the critical shift in that. I sometimes wonder if without that, we would have made any of the progress we made on some other issues subsequent to, to, to AIDS. How do you I mean, in some ways, in other words, I think that the gay movement is a is is the modern success of the gay movement is a kind of story within the story of AIDS. Totally agree. Yeah, I mean, it was the launch. It was the relaunch of the modern gay rights movement. I think, which had, you know, after Stonewall, had a few attempts at at getting some traction and slipped into kind of us enjoying our liberation in our ghettos for about a decade, and then this forced us to actually do national politics publicly. It forced us, it forced many of us out of the closet. And when we act, ended up scoring some major victories, when we changed how the FDA did everything in less than a year and, and then pivoted to the NIH and started making them respond to every concern we were raising and, and then got the Ryan White Care Act, which got special carve-outs for people with HIV in the federal government. We we showed that when we were determined, we could definitely win major victories on on a national field. And ever since, there's that memory knowledge that we can do that. 
So at the same indignation, time, indignation is our has been our posture ever since. If if we're not if we're not given the exact same, you know, treated the exact same way as everyone else, we're indignant and we fight back. Which is yes. what you did with and marriage. Yes, to some yeah. extent, you just say, it requires a certain amount of clarity to just say, no, we des we deserve fundamental equality. Period, and we're not actually going to sit around and 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 we're going to we have to make the arguments and reach out to people to explain to them. We can't just expect them to pick this up by themselves. We have to be involved. We have to reach out. We have to talk to people. But but of course, there were tensions within that movement. I want to just talk to you a little bit about that because you became more focused over time on the actual nitty-gritty of research and what could work and what wouldn't work in various ways. And other members of ACT UP felt that you were becoming co-opted in some ways by big corporations, by the government, by big pharma, by all the rest of it. Tell us about those tensions, because we're currently going through a period where a lot of, and you probably read these stories, a lot of big progressive organizations are tearing each other apart internally. Right over these issues of race and gender and gender identity and and sex. And that was obviously an undercurrent. I remember the, the ACT UP meetings I, I, I attended were, could be almost parodies of this at the time. I mean, the, the, you, the speakers were really never allowed to be shut up at some point. They had this astonishing, if you were a, 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 a lesbian of color, you got priority over somebody else. I mean, I, I, they went on for fucking ever, these meetings. And, and they, were, they were run on incredibly what we would now call woke lines. I was concerned all this stuff was just, just delaying action and, and was not actually focusing on reality. And at some point, a critical mass within that movement decided, well, this is all very well, but we can't spend all night debating whether so-and-so is an oppressed member of ACT UP or more, more oppressed than the other, we need to actually get a cure for toxoplasmosis or a cure for uh, pneumocystis and so on and so forth. So that happened, right? Tell me about that split. Well, I, I mean, I wouldn't, characterize, <laughs> I wouldn't characterize our split as the same thing that's ripping apart some leading national progressive organizations these days. It, it wasn't so much a, a, you know, a woke, anti-woke, <laughs> combat. We were all focused on AIDS, and but camps developed on on the best best way to approach those. And the shit hit the fan in '91 on uh, one particular clinical trial that one faction in ACT UP wanted to stop entirely, and another just wanted to try to improve and realize the necessity of, of doing the trial itself, which was a huge. Ended up being one of the most important clinical trials of the 1990s, proving that one of the antivirals could block mother-to-child transmission, ended up saving millions of lives, and became the proof of concept for PrEP, which... What was the argument against it? I mean, well, it, it, was a, it was a harshly designed trial. It, it was going to be placebo, and, and it was going to be conducted in some countries in, in Africa. And it was also going to when the trial was over, the women who had been studied to see if their babies were okay or not, were not, you know, given lifetime treatment with HIV. They were like, thank you. We're done with you. And there was a lot of concern about that. But, you know, the, the central, central problem was <clears throat> they got, they got pretty dug in their heels on that position. And they, and the, Treatment and data boys basically swooped in and saved the day. We were getting criticized 
nationally by other AIDS activists around the country, mostly African-American activists and Latino activists who called Act Up New York racist for trying to shut down a trial that was important to them. And so... What was that trial? It, ACTG. Oh, I mean, the ACTG yeah. trial was the one that yeah, you're talking yeah, yeah. about, the, so they, the, the, the mother. So they were, you know, they lashed out at that. Because it was... Because it was Af partly African, is that is because part of the no? I mean, population. The majority of HIV were... infections in in New York City at that point were were in Black New Yorkers. So it was you know, and ACT UP was still ninety three or four percent white. We we were, we were no longer representative of the affected communities within two years of our existence, and so we had a diversity problem. And it was basically white activists that had the power to stop clinical trials, even if they were important, even if they offered the possibility of answers to the wider affected communities. And but I'm confused. Why would, especially since among African-Americans at the time, the, the rate of infection of women was, was also higher than among white women of the same category, and, the, and they're saving the lives of their children often African-American children. I don't understand why this is a racial question. Well, there were members at the ACTG, AIDS activists who were Black, who were Latino, and they, there were some women with it, Black women with HIV. They had plenty of friends who knew, who wanted this question answered. They wanted to be able to have a pregnancy in the future. So, and then you had white, female activists from New York saying this trial is corrupt and shouldn't happen at all. And but we're so, going to shut but, down. Forgive me, but it does seem to me a rather typical example. It's purism in a way, moral purism over pragmatic advance. Right? If you when think of it like that, that is partly what's going on today. It's, it's, it's much more important that we insist that we call people uh, who having or at risk of having an abortion people with uteruses or people who get pregnant rather than using the word woman, even though using the word woman be far more effective in, 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 and, and actually overwhelmingly relevant. It's about whether, whether it's this classic conflict between the purists who want everything to be utterly correct before we do anything. And people who say, well, it's imperfect, it's flawed, but it's a bit better and let's do this bit better. And they will try some more. It's a, it was a bit of that. Yeah. I mean, they, obviously they didn't do like the treatment and data committee had a history of doing of when it was taking on an issue, doing a really, really deep dive into that issue and having all our facts straight and making sure our position followed the science. Their position was counter to the science. Whatever motivated them to take those positions, I think they were genuine. In my view, they were simplistic because they didn't do the full research path. And let's be, yeah. let's be frank, people are still mad at you about this. Well, the, in the, fact, the, yeah. the, you, you are still being assailed oh, by, totally. by yeah, people yeah. on there, these questions. There are a few, these, a few. these divisions are incredibly deep and nasty. There's something about the toxicity yeah. of minority groups interacting with one another. I mean, it's not just unique to gays and lesbians, but it is. it becomes this really nasty space. I mean, I think a lot of people just avoid it because... If, if you're going to have to go through that wood chipper of being called a racist, sexist, 
white supremacist, blah, 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 just because you want to do things, they don't want to get involved. And that's, 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 that, then that seeds the activism to the most extreme elements. I'm not sure we have a lock on, <laughs> on the fighting stuff. I bet there's... No, I didn't I mean bet, we have a lock, I, but I bet, minority groups in general tend to... I don't know. There's, I, a, there's a dynamic I, here. I, I, I bet there's tons of internal turmoil in the Proud Boys. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I really don't. I'm not buying your argument there, Andrews, but yeah. I do, because I think that if someone in a minority is out in public and they seem to be representing the minority and say anything that in any way offends any individual within that group, they tend to feel personally betrayed, misrepresented, and they get very angry about it. And And the personal abuse that goes on is really quite astounding to me. And one other point is that do you ever worry that some of the tactics you used, which might have been justified because people were literally dying and has spread in some ways since then to places where you're now Supreme Court justices, houses are under siege, major politicians have to have security, that the way in which this personalized things, the way in which Larry would say to, Larry Kramer would say to leading scientists, you are deliberately murdering us. This is an active holocaust against us perpetuated by you actively you tony fauci you mass murderer there was a level of rhetoric that was truly rattling for the people involved and demoralizing for a lot of them well you know i i was in the midst of it act up had a lot of angry people i think it was the purpose of a movement where you're all talking to each other every week on those endlessly grinding meetings to channel that anger and to make it something useful. I agree with you that there's, you know, there, I mean, it's, it's all, it's always there in my mind. It certainly was there in act up. Unchanneled anger is, can be very, un, you know, very unhelpful and, and wear you down and actually backfire on you. I think we see that again and again. So I'm all about the channeling and the, the anger that is still there, that's still getting expressed, it, it, you know, I, I'm not going to, I don't have a magic wand to excise a portion of human nature. It, 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 it no. there's like the, like the people we upset in their, in their cars stuck in the Holland Tunnel for hours and hours, you know, movement politics has a lot of ancillary little stories of not doing anything to help the cause, but it's collateral, collateral damage. damage. There's tons of it, but I've always been a big picture kind of guy. And I'm looking at how things are moving over time and how they've moved or not moved in the past. And I was surrounded by that stuff. I was not one of the, the screamers in act up. Oh, I know. Yeah, I yeah. know. You were one of the people I could talk to and who <laughs> were calling me a fascist or a whatever. And although, not in front of you. Although, not in front. Yeah. Well, I, I was, I'm still grateful that you always talk to me throughout this stuff so that I could really keep communications clear. But it was quite a time, I have to say, looking back. I mean, I, I, I understand the emotions because the emotions were particularly there. And I get so frustrated by some of these younger kids that I'm like, you keep talking about your, do you have any idea what happened 30 years ago? You, but someone misgendered you and you think, you think this is a crisis for your life? You should be told you're dying in four years' time. You should be watching your friends die. This is not as serious. It is not justify the same kind of tactics. If you are honestly doomed to die, there's a certain level of 
liberation in that of doing what you just really want to do without any quarter. Mm. I get it. I get it. But people are not under the same kind of extraordinary pressure that we we were. And and when I look back, I think of that generation, of our generation, those including many of us who no longer are here, which is a huge proportion of our generation. They were they were fucking steely. They they were strong. Right. They were not victims. They were objectively victims, but they were subjectively powerful. Mm. And they didn't ask other people's permission to be powerful. And they weren't constantly seeking affirmation outside. They wanted to get it right. done. Even um, before ACT UP, ask, the, the Denver prim- Principles, 1983 or four, laid out PWA self-empowerment by an amazing document whose sole purpose was to reject victimhood. Yeah, and I think that was one of the most powerful aspects of this movement in terms of general medicine, that it told patients, don't be so passive, even though the word patient is kind of bound up in being passive. You, I mean, I remember being inspired by this and saying, well, I'm going to shop for doctors. I'm, I'm going to take ownership. I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do my own research. I'm going to find that person out there. I'm going to, I want to know what's going on with this clinical trial. I am not taking doctors authority without any skepticism or pushback. And, and that was, and that has helped revolutionize many other parts of medicine and, and healthcare where patients are no longer satisfied to be told there's no option here or you can't do this. Yeah. And, and that's, a, that's a very positive, self-empowering, again, unleash power. That is what, that's what ACT UP was supposed to be of ourselves, of our own. And I think that was also what was happening in a way self-consciously, which is that there was this shift in gay self-understanding. There was a collapse in shame. There was a, a beginning of understanding we could shape events. We could be a part of this, which is a, a legacy I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of that you, you helped activate. But then let's move forward a little bit because then we have the pivotal year of 96 where the, the cocktail drugs begin to begin to arrive. That was, in some ways, that was a surprise, wasn't it? Because I'm, I just remember even like six months before the data came in, the protease inhibitors were being dissed to some extent. They weren't expected to be this successful. Am I misremembering? You're not misremembering misremembering that. I think some of the early candidates like Veer, et cetera, were, were actually pretty shitty protease inhibitors. And it wasn't until Merck's drug did a large clinical trial with three drugs that that we saw for sure that this could be a yeah, game changer. Yeah, because we were told the use of this one protease inhibitor wasn't that impressive. But when you added them to other, when you, when you added three or more agents to it, suddenly the data was just not good. It was shocking. Yeah. I mean, I remember being there at that meeting when David Ho is, is talking to TAG and yeah. giving the Vancouver evidence. So it was just simply brilliant. Uh, yeah, I just reread that. You wrote about that in, in, uh, in your now in the in, book, infamous, when, when, article. Yeah. <laughs> when, like infamous article. When yeah. Plagues End, the worst, worst title ever, well, but it, it, was, it, it was, was a like, decent article. Was, no, but it was a very personal article. You, you, you talked a lot about what, what you were going through and, and how it was, how but, how this, you too, news, your life, how this news was your changing life, your world. Yes, and a lot of people's right. worlds because it shifted the paradigm. Right. That's all I was saying. It shifts the paradigm. There's no doubt and that, that paradigm what, had, the, the medical breakthrough in 96 was the, the, remains the biggest shift in, in the paradigm of AIDS thus far until, yeah. until we finally end this thing. And that had 
an, for me and for many others, a weird psychological impact because you, you basically at that point, your whole life, your adult life, basically, have been dedicated to this cause. And suddenly it had reached a sort of critical success in as much as if you could get the act, if people, more people get access to this, they would be, we would be past the worst. And we look at the numbers of deaths and they do decline markedly. But that presents another thing. What do we do now? Who are we as gay men now? How did you, I slipped into a depression, my first clinical depression after I, my viral load went to zero, which was not what mm -hmm. I was expecting. <laughs> it was psychologically completely bizarre. We'd had this amazing success and suddenly I felt completely lost. And you did too, right? I mean, to some extent, there was this sense of, of, of weird effects of, of succeeding. Yeah. I mean, I, well, that whole transition out of 96. You write about it well in, in, in that article, When Plagues End. I think, by the way, that gets, you know, it's mostly a, a headline problem. 36 million people have died of AIDS in the world as of this year. And 30 of those happened after 96. 30 million of those happened after 96. So we're still in the middle of this. I mean, the great thing is, is the death rate peaked in 2004 worldwide and has been slowly inching down since then. We're well under a million deaths a year now, and we've got to keep hacking away at that number. But back to your question, I mean, I, I was still in TAG and, and struggling with feeling useful there and uh, was kind of just totally burnt out, frankly. So I, I walked away and tried to figure out what, what to do with this future. And that search for the next thing, I thought it was, I'd take my time and I thought it would be easy, but emotionally it just, it really scared me because I realized all the ideas I could think of, they all seemed too scary. It was like, I had been in this surreal existence. The real world just seemed so too intimidating and scary to embrace again. And, and, uh, um, I did launch a, a website for people with HIV that I was incredibly proud of, but this, at the same time, I, I, I became addicted to crystal meth. <laughs> so, uh, it was a you bumpy the only road. one. You, you were not the only yeah, one. Right? A lot, mean, there uh, was a certain, yeah, I, all the guys I was hooking up with around that time, which is 2000 in New York, crystal was having its first big crystal meth smoking it per se was having its first big wave lagging behind the West coast. San Francisco and LA already had huge meth problems in the gay community and even lag and they were lagging behind Hawaii. It, it seems to have this slow global shift and there was none of it in Europe at that time. But uh, all the guys I was hooking up with were guys my age who were HIV positive. It, it was my cohort. We were all escaping on the same drug. It was fascinating. And, it, and it's a, a deeply destabilizing and disabling drug, what it does to people's. And we're not, we're still in it, are we not? I mean, maybe, I don't, I don't know the precise numbers. I know you kept good right. track of this, but it is, I think, the, the most unreported, undiscussed story among us that this, this drug epidemic has continued to claim so many people's livelihoods, souls, and lives. Right. And how do we, you try, you try to launch a campaign to 
highlight this this problem, right? Yeah, after it's when I was getting sober, I got in. I did a bunch of crystal meth activism, and it act it was hugely successful. Just small numbers of us working on it, but it became kind of national. Ads were placed in all the major cities, including on the West Coast, raising awareness around crystal meth among gay men. New York City did the first appropriations for those kind of advertisement public health advertisements, and we did see a decline of meth use among gay men, which is measured every three to four years as part of a huge HIV surveillance study in the U.S. It did decline quite a bit in all, all the major cities, bottoming out around between 2008 and 2012, but it's been crawling its way back since then. We don't know quite where it is now, but it's, yeah, it's got a toehold, that's for sure. And it, it's moved beyond the smoking and, and become mo mostly a, a community of slammers, those who are injecting it, which is far harder to get off of once you've gone that route than, than the route I got hooked on. What's the, what's the appeal? Now, uh, uh, people that talk to me about this talk about why sex on meth is the most intense and experienced to such an extent that they can barely go back to having sex afterwards without it if they recover. Yeah. What would what you... Why are gay men this particularly susceptible to this particular drug? And why is sex bound up with it? Because it isn't with other communities. Well, G GHB is very much <laughs> connected with sex and... No, but I mean other communities, I mean, oh. like, like truckers who do meth or a lot of, a lot of rural red state America does yeah. it, but they're not doing it to enhance their sexual experience. Many of them are, actually. Okay. So, okay. Yeah, there are plenty of straight people who enjoy meth sex but it you know I, the science is pretty clear it's you know it it blocks it it, it floods the brain with the good stuff your the award syndrome and it blocks all your inhibitions it makes you feel you know invincible and and you lose all your fears and you try new things and so the chemistry behind it is pretty clear and it's not something that just works in a gay brain it works it works no I yeah understand. it works the same but yeah, the fallout is is horrible because lots of, it eventually ruins your sex life. You 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 have you maybe have the quote unquote best sex of your life once or twice at the beginning. And just like heroin, you're quote unquote chasing the dragon from that point on, trying to get back to that peak experience. Although it becomes because you're becoming addicted, each experience becomes kind of more pathetic than the next and to the point where you're just spending hours watching porn. Even if, if another guy is with you in the room, you're both just watching porn. So it becomes, it becomes pathetic. It ruins your sex life. It can take many years to rebuild that. It took me many years to rebuild that. And yeah, there are all sorts of downsides. Yeah, I'm just thinking you of all people. I mean, I don't want to, I'm not, this is not a judgmental point. It is simply, I know anybody who is more in command and more capable, more logical, more dedicated, who fell prone to this because you're a human being and certain, mm. a certain void opened up and you filled it. And it was, it's quite easy to fill. And once filled once, it's very hard to get out. Mm. Um, and talk about something that's actually happening now and more urgent, which is, Lo and behold, a new virus, well, not a new virus, a virus we actually know about, has for all sorts of accidental reasons slipped its way into the gay male community or men who have sex with men more generally and is now spiraling out of control 
in Europe, and increasingly we seem to see in the United States. We don't know quite yet. Where are we, Peter? Why have we learned anything from the past with this new virus? Well, you we should name it. It's not HIV. <laughs> it's monkeypox. Monkeypox. <laughs> it's a monkeypox. It's there was a worst, there was a worst song at a virus. Show, ever. <laughs> I love it. It's a show. There was a showgirls song here in Provincetown at the weekly drag show where the leading performer just did it to the theme tune of the monkeys. Hey, hey, now it's monkeys. Okay. <laughs> and yes. Lots of gay men were laughing, but also a lot of them were a little worried, more than and a little worried. As with AIDS, there were probably, there already is a great deal of dark humor percolating around this new virus that's hitting gay men in the US and in countries in Europe. So first off, I mean, one, the, the, the top line lesson is that we have to do better US leadership on fighting bugs in the rest of the world. We often ignore them when they're percolating in other countries. And they will invariably reach our shores when we do that. COVID proved that. COVID variants have proved that. And, and now monkeypox is proving that. But this has been hugely, hugely frustrating. Once again, the AIDS activists who jump into every bug doing advocacy, we added monkeypox to our portfolio a few months ago. Prep for All is, I think, the number one leader in, in monkeypox advocacy with the Biden administration. And at this point, we're pretty exasperated, knocking our heads against the wall, but also trying to stay focused on the, the present and near future as much as we can, because that's obviously the most important thing in front of us. I but the, the, the mess that we have found ourselves in is you know shocking, very upsetting. A lot of people in the gay community are comparing it to AIDS, which I think is an outrageous comparison. This is not the Reagan administration. Homophobia did not cause these fuck-ups, but it is COVID 2.0. It's not AIDS 2.0. It's COVID 2.0. We have not learned any lessons. We have not fixed any of the HHS agencies, FDA, CDC, BART, that messed up. Remind us what BARDA is. so that Yeah, BARDA is also happens. under the HHS umbrella, and that's, that's the emergency stock. They run the emergency stockpiles. They are in charge of biodefense, and they're supposed to leap in with pandemic response. And, and they also ran Operation warp speed with the vaccines along with coupled with the US military. So and it is actually it's actually a defense department, excuse me, it's not HHS but it works closely with HHS. It's under the defense department's portfolio. So it's supposed to be an emergency response and it's a mess. We are now kind of convinced that uh, there's a bit of a cover up happening that are it's very similar to what we saw with the CDC at the beginning of COVID, where the initial tests for COVID that the CDC produced weren't working, and everyone else in government was screaming at them, what's going on? Redfield, who was the CDC director at that time under Trump, was telling everyone else on the task force Fauci and Burks and even HHS Secretary Azar, we're fixing it, we're fixing it, we're, we'll have it fixed in a few days. And he strung them along like that for a good 
two, almost three weeks before Azar just threw down the guillotine and kind of pushed Redfield into the background. And they and and then the FDA stepped in and opened up the testing apparatus. We're seeing that same kind of bureaucratic where 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 they get caught with their pants down and they get very quiet or they or they say we've got this so that the other people in the government hold on a second and wait for them to fix it and it doesn't get fixed and that's what happened in May and June with monkeypox both on testing with the CDC and and then uh, most acutely with the vaccine supplies that are all sitting there in freezers in Denmark, enough to probably snuff out the epidemic in June. And the FDA and BARDA were telling officials at HHS, including at NIAID, that those were filled and finished and ready to go. And they weren't. They weren't inspected and they weren't. And worst of all, they weren't willing to accept the fact that they were in had already passed their inspection with the EU equivalent of the FDA. So it's a, it's a, I just want to provide some back, background for our, our listeners for this because they're not as up on it as you are. Essentially, monkeypox entered a few what might have been dance clubs, sex clubs in Europe during the height of, of the spring, late spring, got into the U.S. Happily, the U.S. has been developing a vaccine for monkeypox for quite some time, spending couple of billion dollars on getting it ready. There are a million doses actually ready to go. There are many, many multiple more million that can be, can be expedited to be ready to go. And they're sitting in a freezer in Denmark and the FDA is refusing to release them. Now it hasn't, because it hasn't inspected the facility recently. Now it says and it should have done, according to a, 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 an agreement it had with the European Medicines Agency, Medical Agency, which is the one that's is the FDA equivalent in, in Europe. But they're now saying they didn't have an agreement with the e, e, EMA on vaccines, other things, but not vaccines. Yeah, they basically... Which they should have done by now. Yeah, they have a, they've had a practice of accepting EMA sign-offs for a small... Uh, small molecule drugs, which are the kind of the simplest drugs to make. So they trust, they basically trust them on the easy stuff, but they don't trust them on the hard stuff, which includes all vaccines, almost all biologics. And it, frankly, it's arrogance. The EMA has done a far better job on COVID all around, both on testing and, and vaccines. And we should be at it. it this is this is AIDS 2.0 in this sense <laughs> that we're, we are hearing on the calls that we're having, we are hearing the same arrogance from FDA officials that ACT UP heard in September of 89 when we sat down with all the, the FDA commissioner, Frank Young, and all his deputies and listed our demands and just got this wall of arrogant resistance of this is how we do things and we're not budging. And we just heard that last week from, I, I won't name him, but he's pretty famous from the COVID years and he, he, he had a very stiff back. And I just saw a quote this morning, I think in the New York Post, of the FDA is the gold standard. We will blah, 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 blah. No actual. See, here's what I understand. Here you have 
a virus that we have already got a vaccine for. It's not, it's known, which is why it's not HIV and not even COVID. This is a known virus that we actually already have prepped vaccines. This is the perfect test case for nipping an epidemic in the bud. Now, let's say everything that we, you've, you've told us is, is, is true and valid. There must be a way in which someone in the executive branch, using that word correctly, executive, to actually say, we need to stop this now. We need to get the FDA doing it now. We need to cut whatever red tape is in the way. And we need to get these vaccines into the arms of men who have sex with men in America, or we're just sitting back and watching a really ugly, nasty, painful, difficult, disfiguring virus to just spread exponentially in this community. And of course, in due course, other communities. And we don't fully know quite how it's transmitted. They're, 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 I, the word I hear all over the street, and I'm right in the middle of Bear Week here in Provincetown, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of chatter, is no real close skin-to-skin contact. Well, then I look at these dance clubs and I look at the, the Bear right. Tea Dance and it's, it's nothing but jammed bodies next to each other. And, uh, and they have a pathetic number of 7,000, I think, for New York City. Which is insane. I want to know why the bigger gay groups are not talking about about this, why they're not talking to the president, why they aren't making, you know, I want to to know why, how we can make more noise about it. Well, I mean, we do have access to the highest levels, which is great. I mean, we are doing weekly calls with all these agencies and uh, we are trying not to tie them up with what we think is a questions about what we think is a cover up for these early failures and and just trying to get the doses that are in Denmark here the good the good news is that the inspection is done it happened last week it is the the FDA the, already did the inspection the factory the factory inspection is done it started last week and they they departed Denmark on Saturday there now has there has wow. to be uh, lot inspections which are they they test each lot that went, ran, ran through the, the line and uh, they randomly tested to see if it's exactly the vaccine that was supposed to be made and pure and as advertised. There's no deviation. And those should, those should be done pretty damn quickly. And we expect to see a huge increase. All of that stuff is coming in the next couple of weeks. So We've been getting dribs and drabs, which is why I just spent an hour on New York City's website getting an appointment for the guy I'm dating these days. And it was an, unbe- it was an unbearable website experience, but I managed to snag, snag a slot for him. But we should have 300,000 doses in the next few weeks, 700,000 doses by the end of the summer, additional $800,000 by the fall, and a total of... 2.2 million doses in the first half of 2023. And that's only what's been ordered. If we need more than that, all totals up to over 4 million. If we need more than that, they are very willing to purchase more and get it going, hopefully in time. But well, that is, that is, good it news. is good news. But, you know, how we got to, by any measure, if you have an emergency stockpile that's supposed to nip an epidemic in the bud, if you don't have those filled, finished, and ready to go into arms at the in month one, 
then the stockpile is a failure. It's, it's a bureaucratic failure. End of sentence. And the fact that we owned these bottles, that they were filled and finished, that they were in a freezer, and that they were not ready to go, not for one week, not for one month, not for two months, but now close to three months. It, it, while this thing has ex doubled every week exponentially in the U.S., while we went through Pride Week, and right now all the infections that are happening now, we're getting a burst this week. Those were mostly infections that happened over Pride. Next week, we're going to see a July 4th burst. And, you know, there'll be a little Bear Week burst out of P-Town. So it's very frustrating. And, and a lot of us are telling people to cool it for a month until they get their appointment. And I think that would be very wise. The, this is this has not killed a single person, this round of uh, monkeypox in the West, but you do not want to get this. It is hell. It is the most painful infection you can get. You will spend a few weeks crying, literally crying, every time you try to use the toilet. And it's just, it's a very, very frightening, scary bug to catch. So if you can cool it for a month, until you get your vaccination and you have to wait another two weeks after that for your immune system to kick in. And this would be the fastest schedule if you're desperate to get out there. You probably have pretty good protection two weeks after your first shot. Now, the official recommendation is you have to wait two weeks after your second shot, which you get a month to six weeks later after the first shot. But a lot of people aren't going to get their second shots in time. And they'll get them, and they're always going to be incredibly useful as a second shot. But they're, they're, New York City is already making a decision that we're going to hold off on the second shots until we get a lot of first shots done. And that's probably, from a public health standpoint, a smart decision. Yeah, I, I noticed that in Europe, they are actually doing a first round of just shots. Single, yeah. single shots. I want to just briefly say that I'm really proud of Provincetown, that they have managed to leverage quite a lot of vaccines into the town. I was able to get my vaccine on Saturday, Excellent. last Saturday. So I'm feeling a lot less nervous at tea dance. I'm feeling a little less nervous. You have to wait dance. two weeks after your um, shot. Just remember. Really? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm just hanging out at this. Okay. Point. It shouldn't be too... <laughs> But again, we don't really know how it's transmitted. Anyway, I guess we'll find out. No, we do, know. We presumably, do know how it's transmitted. I mean, it, this is I mean, when it's skin to skin. I mean, most frequently with gay men, it's happening during sex. We are what we're not sure about is the the percentage of transmission that's happening with just rubbing on the dance floor, you know, chest yeah. to chest, or you know, that type of thing. But we do know most of the sores are direct infections from other sores. They develop by other sores touching that area, somebody else's sore touching right. that area, which means we're seeing them on the penis and around the anus, including inside. So, and those are obviously extraordinarily painful. So these are, these are th th what matters is that someone has developed a sore that can transmit it. Without the sores, there's much less chance of transmitting it. Is that less the chance? Idea? But you can you can still transmit, and when you are positive, you can even transmit through 
talking very closely with somebody over an extended period of time. It is transmissible. It has a history in Africa of being transmissible through droplets coming out of the mouth. So kissing, if the person is infected, can transmit it. So yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a hard one to avoid. If someone, I'm just asking questions that other men have asked me this last week, as if I know anything, but the, if, even if you got it and you get the vaccine, like maybe you don't even know you've got it, but you get the vaccine, the symptoms are likely to be less severe with the vaccine. Right. It, act, it acts as kind of a double, both a, as a vaccine preventative and as a treatment, as it were. It, it reduces, okay. it can help reduce the symptoms and duration. So if you are a man out there listening to this who may be having intimate or close contact with anyone, but especially gay men and sex, hold off or get a shot as soon as you can. The more we can protect each other, the better it is. Take it from Peter Staley, who's been through a few of these nightmares before. It's not AIDS and it's not homophobia. It is, it is viruses and federal dysfunction. And I hope we can figure out a way to make sure that these vaccines of all kinds that we have stockpiles of can be used quickly and can be distributed and put in arms as soon as possible, prevent this from going much further. What do you think, Peter, is going to happen? Do you, do you think there's going to be a huge wave? Do you think, I mean, how many do we have now? We have, how many cases do we know in the U.S.? Oh God, I've lost count. Okay. Roughly, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to. I, I think this, it's o it's over it, it's over a thousand now, I believe, and okay. and it's considered a, a big undercount. So, so, so yeah, yeah, we we've got thousands, and it seems to be doubling every week. So the question is now whether we've reached a point where these the flood of vaccines that comes to us over the next few months can is enough to snuff out such a high level of transmission so that we don't have endemic monkeypox with us for the rest of our lives, that we always have to worry which about that be, as gay men, which, which would, be, would be absolutely awful. awful. Yeah. Here's, here's another question we'll have uh, for you. What happened to the gay rights movement? It's no longer existent, is it? I feel part of a larger community. Um, I think we're focused. I think we're under total fire. It's, it's the 2004 backlash all over again, just mostly targeted at a different segment of our community. 2004, as you remember, is when a couple states started rolling the ball on gay marriage and, and Bush Jr. decided to run against us on, and make us his target for getting reelected. And we had state after state adding, mentioning homosexuals for the first time in their constitutions by spelling us out you saying see no difference between it was a very scary time and we're we're having marriage equality, we're having it which was a we're having it again with the republicans trying to run on beating up the gays beating up the trans in tw in 2020 no, beating up all for, gays. i mean for for election purposes and i you know it's it's a scary scary backlash but i think we're unified that we have to fight it as hard as it as we can I think Shouldn't they're. I think they're overreaching. Tell, I don't think it's actually going to change votes to their side in the middle. Do you know? Think I, that, I think it looks mean, mean spirited on the French. They're doing it just to get their base out, and and they're getting that out regardless. Do you know? Do you do you think that associating 
gay people with young children and indoctrinating young children in gender, gender, critical gender theory is something of the equivalent of asking for marriage equality. I think they used the same arguments. They were, they were constant. The ads that the, the whole 2004 backlash was done with ads about how we were a threat to children. We are, we, we, we took the initiative on the children. The, the Obama administration said, we're going to make sure your children, whether, whether you like it or not, are told that they can choose whether to be a boy or a girl or both or neither or something else entirely. Teaching kids in kindergarten yeah, that, they, and that they could be trans. Why? This is outrageous. No, it's not outrageous. First, first off, it's, it's an anecdote. And I followed your active. No, it's not. It's that I'm just, following, no, no, I'm just it, quoting directly it, from one of the books set, set as a syllabus being propagated throughout this country through the public schools. It's, an, school it's an anecdote. And I've noticed watching and reading your blog for many, many, many years that a lot of what you get on a campaign about over time, that it is filled often with anecdotes that panic you that really frighten you in some core way. I don't know what it is. But in the large, again, I, I always take bird's eye views. I always look at data. I always look at things logically. This is not, there's, there's not some massive scheme of school systems teaching that penises no longer exist. I, you know, all these anecdotes. No, they're not saying that. Lack. They're saying that as young, in kinder, you honestly favor telling children in kindergarten if they get to check, they get to choose whether they're a boy or a girl. I trust. You're I, in favor of I that? To, I'm, I totally trust that this stuff is going to even out over time. It, there's not some great, mean, even out there's not some great crime that's happening that children are, are being told horrible things in order to scar them for life. Um, they are. No, they're not. I mean, you don't think children no, having scar you. sex change operations they scar you in some way? But no, this is no, they don't. This is I'm not, not the one person not speaking. Pan, this is, is not some pandemic. We did that. We did this whole thing with critical race theory. You and I last year, where you also were pointing out anecdotes, and I and I emailed back. I said, "Show me the data that shows which schools, what percentage of public health school systems in the U.S., what percentage of." total students are being taught critical race theory in the U.S. And you, you didn't reply to that email. I mean, you were looking, you were finding the anecdotes. Are you honestly you finding, telling me, Peter? You were finding the anecdotes out there, the, the examples. You were latching onto those and turning them into something huge and scary. And there was no bird's eye view. There's something that panics. Well, there's something that panics you about this stuff. So why, well, why don't we I talk don't want people, I don't want children being indoctrinated in, in critical race theory or critical gender and critical and critical uh, queer theory. Not, it's, it's an extremist view. It's propagated by a small minority in universities and it's being used to indoctrinate children against the will of their parents. And what about the indoctrination and the people, of our history books that are no longer mentioned that put slavery in some better light that happening no one's doing oh, that no texas one's done that that's like that. a, now you now, now you bring out these absolutely ridiculous no actions. texas is do doing you that. honestly do you think it's appropriate for a child before puberty to consent to being having their sex changed well i read that new york times article the magazine article and it seemed to me 
I mean, I think there are things that you and I can agree on, first off. When it comes to parents dealing with the possibility of a trans child or dealing with a, tra a trans presenting child at various ages. And this article was fascinating. What's her name? Emily Buzz? Emily Buzzle. Yeah. I mean, you and I can both agree that the government, any government, shouldn't be deciding these issues, correct? Yes. Okay. So we're, we're agreed there. Oh, within certain yeah. limits. I mean, I think if, if you, obviously there are limits to what parents can do to their own children. Right. Uh, sure. Within, within certain right. boundaries right. and permanently, permanently altering their bodies so they will never experience an orgasm or never be able to be fertile before, they're, before they can even agree to a tattoo on them seems to be one of the perfectly legitimate subjects of discussion. But not one for the state. Well, at some point, no, the state does have to have a role. It's law. I mean, if, you, if, 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 if a parent cut off someone, a child's limb for no good reason, or even if they thought it was a good reason, you wouldn't regard that as legal. So you approve. There's some limit approve, to what you can do to children. You approve of some of these state laws that will not allow any hormone therapy prior to what age? I, I certainly think as a response to the extraordinary attempt to, to do this across the country for so many children, I think it's a defensive action that I, at some point, I have some sympathy. I don't want it, but if I don't, I don't, the thing is when you listen to the doctors of this, these gender, it's so driven by ideology and it's so devoid of any understanding that maybe children don't know yet. Children need to be protected from this kind of indoctrination. Plausibly telling a three-year-old, you're not a boy or a girl. Because your body tells you nothing about that. Andrew, you're... There are no differences. And you can choose. And if you choose to be a girl, you just have to have all this, these, these hormones and stuff. And sometimes... And we will... And if the minute you say that you're trans, our job is to affirm it. And in fact, if we actually had a thorough mental health assessment, we would be under threat by the Biden administration for conducting conversion therapy. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a word salad with... Very little meaning. Listen, the, the gut of that article, the, the take-home message was that the data, we, ha, we are so lacking in hard data of what, what path these parents and children should take on complex questions that they're, they're in a real bind and they got to jump on learning curves much, much like I did in 85 when there was very little science out there to latch on to and, and make some decisions that are partially in the dark. But, you know, to have the state interfere with that process that the parents and child are going through in any way is just egregious. And, and well, why and, should the state and, therefore be involved, I mean, be involved in public education in telling their, the children of these parents, switching subjects, putting this into their heads at a you're very switching subjects. Actually, what? No, I'm not. That's a state action. It's a public school curriculum. It is mandatory. Like, for example, let's, let's take the state of New Jersey. It's now mandatory for children from three, four, five to be told you are, you can be, you, you could well be trans. And there's never done before. Andrew. Why? Andrew, Andrew I, I just do not see mass indoctrination happening like you do. For some reason, it's... I'm just reading the curriculums. Yeah. 
I'm no. reading the I'm reading the fact you haven't read you haven't read all the, you haven't done a systemic review of the curriculum. I no, actually you have. Haven't. You can look no, at all of haven't. these states. So your your position is just denying no, none of this it's is not happening. denying. It's all, all right wing. It's, it's, it's knowing it's knowing going on it's knowing all. the difference between anecdote and larger picture. And I want to see, I want to see I want to see you know before I say that there's this crisis of indoctrination into something that's going to inalterably change the world. I'm not going to raise it into red flag territory. I think this, you, so. So children, children, and again, you're you're equating adults with children. What's that? AIDS AIDS was about adults. Right. Children before the age of puberty having permanent irreversible changes to their bodies. Would you favor female genital mutilation in Muslim families? Do you think the state should intervene there? I don't equate the two. Why not? I think it's because the I result think, will be the same. No, I think I think it's an offensive equation. I really do. Why? Because the girl had no choice. It wasn't driven. But these it wasn't no driven. Kids, kids do not have it a choice in anything. It wasn't driven. No, the, the, these issues start with the girl or the boy. It starts with the child. They start with the teachers. No, now, oh, telling me. please, you and your indoctrination bullshit. It's. I'm sorry, Andrew. I'm just not going to buy into that. It's it. Okay. It's anecdotal. There's no grand. There's no grand. Is it anecdotal to say that gender identity it's the same, is mandated? Teaching about gender identity is mandated in several states for children from uh, kindergarten upwards. Are you lying? Are you telling me I'm lying about yes. this? <laughs> All right. So there was no need. There was absolutely no need for the law in in Florida because children were not being taught this at all that they could be a boy or a girl in kindergarten. This just you're full of bullshit. Yeah. This is you're full of lies and denial. No, I'm not. Because you and these are often gay kids, gay yeah. kids who are gender nonconforming, who are being told they could be the opposite sex. And this is an attack on gay children. Oh, come on. Why is it not? How is it not? I, you know, it's it's what this generation is exploring, and God bless them. No, it's not. It is what this this generation does explore anything on its own. It has been taught no. that there is no such thing as it's sex, not taught that there is no such thing as a woman. There's no such thing as a man. That's not where it starts, Andrew. The tran, you know, there was none of these examples of teaching, which you found only in the last two years came well after the explosion of numbers of kids identifying as non-binary and trans. This is, this is something this generation is, is expressing. Maybe there, it, it was an expression that was suppressed by our generation and is only now being allowed to more honestly express itself. And you're turning it, you think and you're, 5, and you're turning it to this evil thing of, we're indoctrinating the children to explore this path, and they're on this dangerous yeah. course, and they don't know what they're doing at all. Them and the parents are being hoodwinked. Come on, I'm just not going there. I just I don't How believe people, I don't believe that's publicly... what's driving it at all. This is it, we we as gay men we're now being told that we're what's the latest charge from the Republicans that we're converting groomers. What's that? Groomers. Groomers. groomers, exactly. So, same thing, you know. And it's oh, so are we, we groomers? Nothing. Are we that, groomers? The fact that the gay rights <laughs> no, of, of course, course not. not. We have certainly given them plenty of ammunition. Uh, 
I don't care about to the say ammunition. That. I really don't care. They are going to use. You don't care about gay kids, quite clearly. Oh, that's not they, true they at all. The wolves. I, I'm a huge, you know, dang, uh, you got me angry. <laughs> so the human rights campaign, the leading gay rights group, doesn't believe that biological sex makes you a man or woman. Believes that you are a man or woman simply by your say-so. Do you agree with that? No. What is what? How do you define a man or a woman? Well, I think there. Are, I think the science of biological sex is, you know, more diverse than pure binaries, but it's primarily binary. Well, thank you. Just, this is the science. Yeah. Uh, but that science is now denied by the Biden administration, by the human rights campaign, by all the major gay organizations. I don't. I don't uh, connect the dots that you do but what you know have at it <laughs> that 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 by by some of the things that the biden administration has said or the hrc has said that they're therefore well, the equality act that itself. they are therefore saying this which is the, the yes. which is the you know you skip the in-between dots but i i'm not buying into if you were to say on twitter that you believe that there is a biological difference between men and women and that what defines men and women is biology, you could be censored. People have been censored. I know. Because it's offensive hate speech. Science is hate speech, which is entirely driven by critical queer and critical gender theory, well, the which does not believe in material reality outside of, of systems of oppression of thought. Right. This was the head of the... The Grand Marshal of the New York Pride March this week does not believe in biological sex. You and I are in agreement about okay. speech constraints. So I was one of the, you know, I was never on board even, I wrote about it in the book. There was some speech policing in ACT UP, even before ACT UP, where to say, to have anybody in public, even who was on your side, say the word AIDS victims. We tried to drum that out of public discourse. And I was like, come on, we've got bigger fish to fry. And there are, I do meet plenty of, I have met plenty of millennial activists over the last 15 years that 90% of their activism is policing speech. And it, I just, I don't get it. I, I don't, they can, you know, whatever gets their rocks off, let they can no, go but to the reason it, but the but, reason is because me, they leave that language me, everything. Yeah, let me finish. I, I don't get it. I, I, it's not the kind of activism I'm going to do. I think it, I think it's a self-inflicted wound most prominently. I think one of the driving forces of the radical right is the rural urban divide where they feel that they're being talked down to. And they're being told how to speak. There's a real rebellion against that. I think there's a very natural human reaction. Each of us feels when we're told, oh, you can't say that. And so I'm, I'm totally, you know, I'm against speech policing. Always have been. I think it's a lame kind of activism. I think we need to be uh, open to conflict and hashing stuff out and, and uh, the drop is, the I trigger warnings and, and fight like hell to fix things. See, I don't think you fully understood where this movement is coming from, which is that speech is kind of, the idea that we have free speech is itself a function of a racist, homophobic society, a sex, et cetera. That language is everything for them. 
that everything is about systems of oppression, that the individual is basically irrelevant in this, in this, in this, in this mindset, and that the goal is to use the government to reverse these systems of oppression. Right. And the only and because all these systems of oppression are in our heads and in language, that's where you start. That's why they will almost never say the word, we, we will not hear the word gay anymore or lesbian. These have been basically banished from the activist community. <laughs> it is true. It's not true. It's, it's LGBTQIR SDUVWX plus plus. It is a system of, it's, a, it's now it's continents. It's not true at all. You need to get out more, Andrew. You really do. I read, I, I read I, so much. I know in the actual gay world, people still use yes. these words, but the people who claim to represent us never do. Uh, do a Google search. It's all acronyms. Do a Google search on LGBTQI+. Do a Google search on gay and lesbian, and you could do the engram graph and see, it is see being, if it's it disappearing is. off the graph. Why, why don't we it is. statistically analyze it, is. it on, on the web? Okay. <laughs> I will, will, I'll be, um, but do you no, find the I, definition I, of every gay and lesbian as queer to be in some ways a distorted? Again, I'm not going to police language. Either way. I use it. Because it's a good catch-all sometimes. I, you know, I do LGBTQ as far as I go. Most of the time it's LGBT. Most of the time it's just gay. I think it's a good all-encompassing term. So I'm flexible on the language, as I've always been. I don't. I don't. You're I don't. Naive. Feel, no, you're naive, I don't. Terribly I don't naive feel about by it. I don't feel like the world is ending by some of this stuff. What I what I want to say on the flip side of the coin of meeting some of these millennial activists who are concentrating on word policing is that at the same time, I work day in and day out with millennial activists who are concentrated on the real stuff. So that's why I say get out in the world and, and, and see some of the activists that, that's happening within the community. It's, it's all business. It really is. And, it, and they're, they're brilliant. AIDS activism is now driven largely by 20-somethings and 30-somethings, they are also, some of them are actually horrified by the excesses of their own generation. They are well aware of it. It's going to be a self-correcting thing over time. That's why it doesn't freak me out like it does you. And, well, and if it does self-correct, Peter, it will be because some of us spoke up against it, <laughs> as opposed to sitting there and not doing it, not saying a word. I, I don't. And, well, well, wait, Andrew. And not, seeing the gay rights movement yeah, being yeah, set back you're, you're not, a couple of generations. You're not accusing me of not doing enough, right? <laughs> I almost am. I almost am. <laughs> no, I, you're not. You're just accusing me of not, you know, beating your little drum, your little paranoid, angry it's drum. It's a big, it's a big, <laughs> it's a big, well-informed, entirely good faith should drum we, that we... I will continue to bang. <laughs> <laughs> to prevent, especially to protect gay children yeah. who are at this point being told they could well be uh, the gay, a member the of the opposite sex, and they should think about that. I, I talked to, I talk to, you know, most of the Zoom Zooms I do these days are with this very, you know, this generation that you think is being bamboozled. They're fresh in college and they're studying this stuff, and I talk to the students all the time. They're going to work, you know, it's a, it is a new time. It's, an, it's a lot of new stuff happening, but they're going to work it out just like we did. Well, on that optimistic note, Peter, <laughs> I think I, I, I'm sticking to my guns here. I think that the, the, the capture of the gay rights movement by these uh, critical theorists is a deeply dangerous thing, will lead to enormous backlash that will be in part deserved. And we're, we're, we'll, we'll see gay people suffer as a consequence of it. That's my view. And 
Do you even hear a debate about this, by the way, just around or in, in the gay press? Is there? Oh, yeah. There's no debate. There is a debate. Really? Where, where do you see where do you see counter arguments in the gay press or in the gay organizations or any of the official representatives of the gay world? I hear mostly conversations. I'm not. I, yeah. I, I mean, I yeah, don't yeah. read much. No, of, I know people privately are talking about this a lot. Right, and they're right, concerned right, right, right. about it. They have different views um, about it. They're there. But no. The, the elites and the Biden people who are just captured, captured by these crazy activists. Hmm. There is no dissent allowed whatsoever. <laughs> they are. They will scream at them if they don't facilitate immediate affirmation for any kid saying, I might be the other side. Uh -huh. And that's so Biden is, fact, after the, Biden is going after the gay male and lesbian female children. He's he's got a target on their backs. Well, he doesn't know what he's, I mean, he's obviously not capable of even understanding this stuff, but he's been fed complete propaganda. He has no idea of the arguments mm. against this and never even acknowledged that they exist. Mm. If, as far as his concern, the frame is, do you hate trans kids? Then you disagree with me. Or do you, if you love them, you're on my side. The idea that there could be a complicated question here is something beyond him because he literally hasn't talked to a single person, I think, who has an alternative view. But anyway, Biden is going down in flames in history and in, and in actual politics, so it'd probably be, at this point, kind of moot. But Never Silent is the book that the riveting memoir that Peter Staley has written about his time as an activist. It's a, it's a really interesting fun book. Peter, I... I want to say how much I disagree with you, which I do every <laughs> summer. <laughs> long, long fights. I cannot respect you more. And I thank you for your work. And I love you as a friend. And uh, I hope we can continue to fight <laughs> for many more years. And I'm grateful for you coming on and just hashing this out. Because I think it's uh, every time we hash it out, it helps a little bit yep. to, for, to clarify other people's ideas and arguments. But Peter, thank you for taking this beautiful afternoon in Providence and coming. You ruined my day. I know, I know, I know. I feel terrible. But thank you for doing this. And thanks um, for having me on. I'm so grateful. Yeah. You All bet. Right. Buy the book. And also, if you enjoyed this and enjoyed other conversations we have, we have no ads. We give this out for free. It's a maximum exposure. But if you want to help support us, then then please subscribe. It's, it's five bucks a month. It's really not that bad. And for that, you get four long conversations with some of the most interesting people on the planet. So I, I really urge you to do that if you can. Thank you, Peter. And we'll see you all next week. Thank you. Mm -hmm.